Hey guys, before we get stuck into today's episode, I want to thank the sponsor of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, and that is Unify Health Supplements. Unify have the most premium, high-quality, science-backed products on the market in Australia today, and you guys can use the code TFLP to save 10% off your next order at unifyactive.com. Unify has a range of products, including whey protein isolate, plant-based protein, a pre-workout, creatine monohydrate, and their best-selling product, the Hydration Formula. So again, use that code TFLP to save 10% at unifyactive.com. What's up, folks? I'm Will Ahmed. I'm the founder and CEO of Whoop. We're on a mission to unlock human performance. I've spent a lot of my career focused on engineering and technology and design to improve health. And welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. Well, welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, man. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'm super grateful for your time, uh, even more grateful for the incredible product that you've developed. And yeah, man, I'm, I'm just stoked to have you on. So thanks so much for being here. Danny, thank you for having me. Mate, what I was wondering last night before I, I came in this morning for this interview is how many times a week do you reckon you get asked what your WHOOP score was that morning? I get a fair amount of what's your recovery, what's your HRV, you know, there's a little bit of office chatter, if you will, on who's in the green today, who's in the red. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's look, it's a part of my life, obviously. I, I, uh, I've spent close to a third of my life building this company and uh, and it's a product that you wear 24-7. So. Yeah, it's an incredible product. Uh, after watching through a bunch of your interviews and just starting to understand you a little a little better, I was super intrigued to hear that you know the catalyst for even starting Whoop or, or trying to develop the product in the first place was off the back of you experiencing some overtraining and starting to understand your body a little better. When you were at Harvard at the time, what was the exercise that you were doing that was leading you to be in that state of overtraining and how long did it take you until you decided, hey, I want to try and figure this out myself? Well, I grew up playing a lot of sports. I think uh, squash was really my calling as a college athlete. So I played squash at Harvard and I was captain of the team there. And, uh, and look, I just thought the more you train, the better you get. Uh, the more you play, the fitter you get. Like it wasn't, it, it, uh, it was surprisingly unscientific looking back on it. And I think that's why it inspired me to do a lot of research around physiology. Uh, why, you know, why did some days I feel, feel great and other days I felt run down and why was it sort of random? And what could I do to train optimally and peak on a given day? You know, that's so much, I think, of what an athlete's trying to figure out. And in the process of reading hundreds of medical papers, I found metrics that I realized weren't just valuable for athletes, but really everyone. Hmm. And one of those being heart rate variability, I'm imagining. Heart rate variability jumped off the page. I mean, I think it really pulled me in. To go back in time, 10, 11, 12 years now, we're probably in 2010. I am 20 years old. 
and I'm just sort of casually reading these papers on heart rate variability. And, you know, for your audience that's less familiar, heart rate variability is this lens into your autonomic nervous system, and it's a deeper understanding of heart rate. It's essentially measuring the time between successive beats of the heart. And I had never heard of it before, even as someone who would, you know, often wear a heart rate monitor or a chest strap because I thought the data was interesting. I'd never heard of heart rate variability. And in the papers I was reading, you know, dating back to the 80s, there were Olympic power lifters that would use their heart rate variability as a, as a mechanism to understand how much they should lift. And there were cyclists who are using heart rate variability to determine how hard their training should be on a given day. And the CIA was using heart rate variability for lie detection tests. And even cardiologists were using heart rate variability to predict heart attacks. And so I asked myself, why have I never heard of this statistic? This seems like an incredibly valuable statistic. Why isn't everyone measuring it? And it really came down to a technology problem. You know, heart rate variability was best measured by an electrocardiogram, which at the time was expensive medical technology in a hospital and not really, you know, a consumer friendly technology. And in addition to realizing it was hard to measure, I also realized that it was really important to capture the statistic over a long period of time. If you took my heart rate variability in this precise moment, it would say a lot more about how stress or activated my mind is than it was, would about my own physical um, potential or athletic performance, say later tonight if I'm going to go work out. But if you take my heart rate variability while I'm sleeping, that actually can give a huge lens into how restored my body is and how ready my body will be in the morning to take on strain and stress. So anyway, I'm just speaking to the fact that it's a very sensitive statistic, along with being a very insightful statistic, it's very sensitive. And so the time that you capture it is as important as the accuracy with which you capture it. So anyway, all of this was, was um, information that I was really grappling with as a student. And of course, I really didn't know that I was starting a company or was on a trajectory to starting a company. I really had no idea what that was. I didn't know what it meant to be an entrepreneur, uh, but I was pulled in by this problem, this problem of understanding the human body and being able to measure the human body. Something that I've found quite interesting in terms of feedback from either clients or listeners of the Fitness and Lifestyle podcast is how many people were unaware of the impact of REM sleep and deep sleep in comparison to the amount of time that someone has spent in bed or actually the time they've spent asleep. So what have been some of the factors that you've seen or as a company that you guys have seen that actually go to impacting in a positive way the amount of REM sleep you know, and the restorative sleep that someone is seeing when they're actually in bed? I know things like blue light blocking before bed is something that I've done for some time now and I've heard you talk about it a lot as well. But whether it's for you personally or as a company, what are some of the things that have a positive impact on being able to have more restorative sleep? Such a great question because it really zeroes in on the most important thing. A lot of people get caught up with sleep in time in bed and they use the fact that they have a busy schedule or lifestyle as the reason for why they can't get good sleep. Oh, I don't have enough time. 
Well, you're probably spending five, six, seven hours trying to sleep. You know, you're in bed for that number of hours. What percentage of that time can you make restorative sleep? Because when we're asleep, we're actually in periods of being awake, in light sleep, and being in REM and slow wave sleep, which we're calling restorative sleep. And so the REM sleep, that's when your body is repairing its mind. That's when you're doing a lot of your deep dreaming. Um, and it's really, really important for anyone who needs to perform cognitively. Your slow wave sleep is when your body produces about 95% of human growth hormone. So athletes think they're getting stronger training or in the gym. Often they're breaking muscles down doing that. You're actually getting stronger when you sleep to repair those muscles. So all this is to say, Danny, as you know, the more time that you can spend getting restorative sleep versus being awake or in light sleep, the better. So what are the ways you can do that? Okay. Uh, the first is um, your bedroom environment. So generally speaking, colder, darker, quieter, and better air quality, right? All of those are going to make for a better sleep environment. Another big one is going to bed and actually waking up at a similar time. So if you look at someone who goes to bed and at midnight and wakes up at 6.30 every morning, so they spend six and a half hours in bed, and you look at someone who maybe spends seven and a half hours in bed, but it's, it's changing wildly, you know, maybe they go to bed at 11, maybe they go to bed at one, da, da, da. it turns out the person who's go, going to bed consistently is actually going to get more restorative sleep. So that consistent bedtime and wake time gets your body on a good rhythm, a circadian rhythm that in turn actually helps you uh, have a higher quality of sleep. Uh, other factors that are important, uh, being hydrated, um, not drinking alcohol, not eating too close to bed, eating within three hours of bed for most people, I say most people because it's not everyone, but most people um, will disrupt the quality of their sleep. Uh, another uh, important factor, you brought this up, is blue light. So Whoop makes blue light blocking glasses that essentially block blue light from screens. If you're someone like me who is on their phone actually late into the evening or might watch TV, you know, with your partner or whatever, all that light that's coming from those screens uh, has blue light and it's stimulating your mind and essentially telling your mind to stay awake. And so if you wear blue light blocking glasses or you don't look at any screens, which is harder, uh, then you, uh, you actually eliminate this challenge and it'll improve the quality of your sleep. So uh, to summarize, you know, we've got the, the bedroom environment. Uh, we've got some of the, the things you do leading up to bed, um, avoiding blue light you know, staying hydrated. So all these things can improve it. I know you're someone who really values your meditation and, you know, so am I. I, I. I like to start my day with meditation. And as of late, a couple of the factors that I've found that have actually allowed me to increase my restorative sleep have been meditating again prior to sleep and almost trying to get into that theta brainwave state before I, before I go to drift off to sleep and, and even playing around with things like mouth taping. I don't know if that's something that you've you've tried previously. Um, 
But on the meditation side of things, something that intrigued me so much is I spent a week with Dr. Joe Dispenza doing his advanced uh, meditation retreat. And I came into it thinking that, you know, this is going to be great. I'm going to get away from, from home and work for a week. I'm going to train a lot. I'm going to get a lot of extra work done and meditate a little bit as well. And it turned out that we did, I think it was 36 hours of meditation in six days. So there was absolutely zero wow, time to train. And yeah, for sure. And my, my typical energy expenditure, I thought was significantly lower, but through the statistics on whoop what i actually found is my average energy output daily was higher than what it is when i'm at home training and and busy with work schedule day to day so it was something that to be honest like fuck, just blew my fucking mind what i was intrigued to ask you is what has been some of the biggest observations or lessons that you've taken away from spending time in meditation so i've been meditating for close to 10 years now I do it every morning for about 20 minutes and I think it really changed my life. I mean, the, at the period of time when I first started meditating, I was, I think a more sort of stereotypically frantic entrepreneur, you know, you've met these people who are driven and wired, but like a little chaotic right? You can just tell it's like they got too much going on in their head. And I personally was someone who was just stressed out. And I was drinking a lot of coffee. And it was like felt like it wasn't doing anything. I was drinking too much alcohol. Like, I just wasn't, I wasn't embodying actually a lot of the things that Whoop preaches even today. And I was struggling with being a first time CEO and the responsibilities of managing at the time, you know, tens of millions of dollars and maybe a team of 20 or 30 people, like all of it felt overwhelming. And so I turned to meditation and, you know, the, the path for me in meditating was first and foremost to find a way to de-stress. But the, to your point about what have you discovered from meditating, I think it's been a lot more impactful than that uh, and a lot more profound than that. I've found a lot of the benefits to meditating are outside of the period that you're even in it. You know, this feeling that when you're meditating, thoughts come in and you get to decide whether you want to pay attention to them or not or whether you want to shuffle them along in the process you're developing sort of a third person perspective on yourself or on your own mind. And what I've found in my life is that that persists such that I get to notice things are happening for me before they happen, like um, an emotional state. Again, young will frantic CEO will, would find himself in a state of being angry and yelling and, and then almost be catching up to myself. Like, oh, wow, you know, this is a situation now. Whereas from, med from meditating, I've learned a, a way um, to essentially see that happen before it happens. Oh, you know, you hear in the back of your head a voice that says, oh, Will's about to get angry. And in, a, and in a way, it almost becomes a choice then. Well, do I want to get angry or should I dial this back? 
So that's that's kind of like the uh, governing body version of um, meditating and how it's enhanced my 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 sort of overall life from that. Then there's just sort of the magic of meditating and how it connects everything in your life strangely, and how you start to you start to make connections between things that you otherwise wouldn't have. You have very creative thoughts. Things come in and you don't know where they came from, but then you realize how relevant they are to your day or your week or what you need to do. And so again, I'll repeat like it to me, meditating is like a superpower because it gives you all this information that otherwise I'm not sure I would get. And so uh, I can't recommend it enough. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about your experience with meditation. Yeah, for sure. I was quite similar to you. I'd always been, had a big focus on the physical aspect of, you know, whether it be fitness or even within business, it was just go, 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 go. There was never much time to step back. And and when I look at it now, I, I wasn't very good at sitting with my own thoughts or just sitting in in nothingness really i kind of avoided it at all costs and initially i started meditating for quite short periods of time and then over the past three to four years i've done a deep dive into understanding meditation a little better to the point now where you know i'll meditate for 45 to, to 60 minutes and genuinely come into that meditation with a, a sense of excitement or or joy mainly knowing that as you mentioned it's allowing me to have this greater awareness and the ability to pull myself out of situations and not react as much. But it also allows me to set that intention of, you know, how do I, what do I want my state of being to be today? And how long can I stay in that state and not kind of fall out of it and, and reprogram these old, these behaviors or thoughts that maybe aren't really serving any purpose. And it's been a game changer for me. Um, it's it's done absolute wonders. And it's just something that I now continue to, to dive down uh, a little deeper and just continue to kind of learn more about myself. But as I said, allow myself to choose exactly the, that type of person that I want to be in the state that I want to stay in. Yeah, that's really nice. I, I, I wonder too, your Joe Dispenza retreat, like, okay, it sounds like that was a much more intense process. What do you, what did you feel like you tapped into from doing it for hours and hours versus 20 minutes or 40 minutes? Yeah, it's funny. Leading into that week, I, I did about two to three weeks of 45 minutes in the morning. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to come into this. I don't want any surprises. It's going to be all sweet. I'm going to be ready. And then day one, we meditated for six hours. And I, I left there and I was like, fuck, this is going to be a long week. Um, but I think for me, it was the lessons I took away were ultimately things that I wasn't expecting. So some of the main takeaways was was understanding that I probably went into a lot of the stuff that I do in life with an expectation or my idea of what a win or a loss is or success or no success. So just removing the expectation and just allowing things to be as they are. Um, the next thing is that I was trying too hard to meditate. You know, I think that's just off the back of being a former athlete and just feeling like even within business that I, the harder I work, the more I'm going to achieve. I was coming into a meditation and trying really hard to have an outcome or to have an experience. And as soon as I let go of that and just allowed myself to to be in that meditation, it actually ended up being a lot better. But um, I think just spending that time really allowed me to also understand that whenever I feel resistance or discomfort, 
just like when you're in the gym when you're lifting weights and it gets difficult and you either have to do more or you just stop and you stay the same that resistance and that discomfort on the other side of that is growth so now when i do a longer meditation i'm sitting there thinking to myself right there's a million things that i feel like i could be doing right now and i also want to get up and you know i'm feeling uncomfortable sitting here doing this meditation but when that feeling arises that's like the ticket for me to know that if i sit through this on the other side of it there's growth and and progress so it's something that i've really leaned into i like that yeah i've thought about doing one of these longer retreats i haven't done it yet but uh i I find it intriguing yeah i think you would love it i was thinking yesterday you know when you go back to when you were say 20 to 22 so i think that was between maybe 2010 to 2012 i believe what's the difference in your approach to handling the fat the fear of failure then in comparison to now so obviously now you have a lot more responsibility you've got investors you've got staff you have you know so many people who, who use your product and i guess the stakes are a little higher but when you're going into making a decision on the business or even something just in your personal life how do you approach that fear of failure that so many people uh, are crippled by well Overcoming a fear of failure, I think, is one of the most important things you can do in your life or your career. And often if the if the thing holding you back is the fear of failure, it's the right path. You know, it's it's the higher calling. And uh, and so. I mean, to be clear, it took a lot for me to just have the the comfort with starting a company as a 22 year old. So most of my time in college was wrestling with this idea of starting whoop and not really knowing what that meant and sort of the insecurity of all my friends going on to these jobs at a college that sounded so great and were so secure and made their resumes look really good. And, you know, me doing this thing that sounded crazy that, you know, for the most part, people thought was going to be a failure. So, you know, I, I, I think I went through, I went through that process pretty head on and overcoming a fear of failure is different than embracing failure. A lot of successful people give this advice of embracing failure, I think as a way of telling people it's okay to not be afraid to fail. But I don't think that the goal is failure. I think the goal is success, you know, and to in a weird way, failure has been romanticized to the point where it sounds like it's a great end state. You don't want to start a company and have it fail. You want it to succeed you want to win right like you want an outcome that is exciting and dynamic and you create products and services for people that deliver value like that's what you want um now what will stop you from achieving that is being afraid of failing and uh and so i i do believe encouraging people to get over that fear is so important definitely not i like the way you've you've put that it makes a lot of sense and as you said it probably has gotten to that point now where people have kind of taken it the wrong way to the point where it's like, all right, I'm kind of going into this and then people end up almost having an expectation that they're going to fail, but it's all right because they've, they've kind of come to terms with the fact that maybe that's a possibility. I wonder for you now, 
what are some of like, what do you feel like some of your biggest, as an entrepreneur, some of your biggest insecurities, or maybe even it's just outside of being an entrepreneur, it's just life in general, some of the things that you feel like you're working on the most and, you know, meditating so often like you do and having that self-awareness um, and, and being such a high level operator like you are, what are, what are some of those insecurities that you've really identified that you're trying to work on at the moment on yourself? Well, I, I always want to be growing into that next stage of my potential. And I think I sit here today incredibly grateful and blessed that I've been able to put Whoop in this position, put myself in this position to build this technology at this moment in time. I think it's a unique moment in time where there's about to be a revolution in health monitoring. And I feel I've spent the last 10 years preparing to be a big part of that revolution. And so the thing that keeps me up at night is not seizing that opportunity, not rising to that occasion, uh, not becoming that better version of myself. And, uh, and so there's a certain weight that comes with believing you have that opportunity in front of you and a certain responsibility that you feel uh, as a consequence of that. So the insecurity point to your question is like, am I growing into that? You know, and, and by the way, being the CEO of a company that's 550 people is different than being the CEO of a company that's 100 people or 50 people. Um, or also 5,000 people, right? You know, at each of these stages, you have to evolve. And I also think about, as I, I'm putting such an emphasis on this aspect of my life, how are other aspects of my life developing or being held back, you know? How is your relationship with your family, with your wife, with your friends, with you know, all with yourself, you know, are you, uh, are you investing enough in those areas so that you're also a well-rounded person, right? And, and I've met a lot of founders who have had enormous financial success, but you realize they're actually not very happy in life. So you don't want to be that either. So those are some of the things, I don't know if they're insecurities, but the things I think about a lot. Have you found, you know, you mentioned just then there's a big difference between having, let's say, 500 staff in comparison to 100 staff, but do you feel in the moment that the responsibility feels exactly the same? So when you were at that level where you had 100, did that feel the same as what it does when you get to something like 5,000 or do you find that your experience and your ability, your tools to deal with that type of pressure and stress improve over time to the point where it doesn't feel the same, if that makes sense. I think perceptions of responsibility and even a notion of stress being associated with that has a lot more to do with your own internal expectations than it does with some notion of reality. You know what I mean? Like for me, the responsibility and the pressure that I felt of managing a 30 person company as a 24 year old, like I just felt the weight of the world. And that's not to say that I had more responsibility then than I do today. Arguably I have more responsibility today, but it's just that I hadn't learned how to deal with that responsibility. And I wasn't managing my own 
self that well either. And so I didn't know how to handle those feelings. And, and yes, there is an aspect of the longer you've been in the arena, the more comfortable you get being there. Right. So there, there is a, there is a phenomenon like that. <clears throat> but I think that, uh, the thing that people underestimate about becoming an entrepreneur or becoming a CEO is you're going to get better at it over time. Don't judge yourself by whether you're ready for it today. Judge yourself by whether you're going to get a little bit better every day in the pursuit of it. And, uh, and so that's helped me a lot also is just like having that kind of growth mindset to figure out how can I get a little better every day. That's awesome. Uh, I really love that. I was thinking the other day, just when I was, I was doing something in the Whoop app, it was, I was looking through some of my stats for the previous month or whatever. And I was thinking to myself, like, what is the process that you guys have to go through in order to introduce a, uh, a new functionality on the app? So obviously I look at something like the stress monitor or, or even with the, um, the strength training functionality and whatnot, how much time goes into making sure that a, a new functionality is ready and what does that look like on the back end just for the audience to have an understanding of, of how much kind of testing and time and everything goes into bringing something like that onto the, onto the software? When we launch a new feature, there's just an enormous amount of design work, engineering work, uh, data collection, testing that goes into putting it out into the world. I think that because Whoop is a membership and because we're a small company in the grand scheme of things, we have a very passionate uh, energy for releasing new things and, you know, operating at really this uncomfortable pace. We want to move quickly. And, uh, and so that, positions us to be on this cutting edge. <clears throat> and so we'll we'll take a problem, a big hairy problem, and then we'll figure out how to solve it. And often so the solving it part takes years, even if we're working as fast as possible. But the outcome can be really profound. So what's an example of that? Well, we recently came out with uh, the strength trainer, which I think your audience will be interested in. Historically, WHOOP measured strain primarily in terms of cardiovascular strain. So how elevated is your heart rate for how long over what period of time? That might be a sign uh, of more strain or less strain. And that's how WHOOP would measure strain in the app. We realized, though, you know, for a lot of people who did weightlifting or, you know, cross-functional activities that they weren't getting the appropriate credit for all the stress they might be putting on their muscles. And if you do a big weightlifting session and maybe you're taking a bunch of rests in between heavy lifts, your heart rate might not be that high, but there's no question you've just put an enormous amount of strain on your body. So we knew we wanted to create technology that could measure muscular load and the strain that was being put on muscles. So we went out and we kind of canvassed the space and we found actually a technology that we liked that was already doing it. It was able to measure 
a lot about muscular load, especially during weightlifting activities. And we uh, ultimately acquired that company and it had a hardware component, it had software. And then we spent the next two years figuring out how to take their hardware, which was much bigger than ours, and integrate it into our smaller hardware. And so thereby, you, you don't have to go buy some new piece of hardware, but we're actually going to make all the intelligence inside our existing hardware. And we're going to upgrade it with software, known as firmware, actually. The, the, the software that lives within your hardware is called firmware. And so we were able to update the Whoop app just this year for people already on Whoop, already using the Whoop 4.0, to have their sensor now be able to measure muscular load during sessions like weightlifting. And so that's just one example of a process that took, you know, probably two and a half, three years of work um, between researching it, buying a company. We did data collections on all sorts of different uh, exercises. I mean, 500 different types of exercises in the Whoop app between bicep curls and you know, leg press and everything else. And, and, you know, really understanding the mechanics of that. And then, uh, you know, being able to create algorithms that allowed us to measure it. So that's just one example um, over quite a long period. Wow, so much time. But that function, it's crazy. Just uh, when I often think about the features in Whoop, it's just crazy to think that we can get these statistics from such a small thing on your wrist. When you think of say five to 10 years time down the track, is there anything on the top of your mind right now that you would like to be able to measure or, or features that you would like to have on the, the whoop software that would allow, um, you know, people to continue to understand their body and performance and recovery. Is there something that you would like to work towards at the moment? So some of this, I have to keep a little closer to the chest, but I'll give you a, a general answer, which I really believe. And it's that, Pick a shorter time frame than that. You know, maybe it's in the three years, three to five year time frame. I think that continuous health monitoring will be a continuation of the doctor's office. And what's screwed up about the healthcare system, especially in the United States, is it's all curative costs. Curative costs being something bad happened, let's now fix it. And if you can shift curative costs to bring preventative costs, you can really um, improve the healthcare system dramatically, not to mention have much better outcomes. So knowing that you're sick before you feel sick, knowing you're going to have a heart attack before you have the heart attack, knowing that you're at risk for X, Y, Z. These are all the things that continuous health monitoring will be able to do. And so you're not going to go see a doctor on some random day of the year and have them stick technology on you that was invented four decades ago, you're going to get a message 30 minutes before you need to see a doctor. And when you show up, they're going to have all the readings they already needed because it's already been collected. So I think that's the, that's, what's really exciting about health monitoring. You know, we started with the world's best athletes and we've just gradually moved over time towards everyday consumers. That's incredible. Super exciting stuff. Um, and yeah, crazy to think that we'll be hopefully at that point, as you mentioned, between the next three to five years, 
Will, I'm super mindful of your time, but I wanted to kind of just ask you one last question before we wrap up. And that was up until this point, now this might be with Whoop, this could just be for, for you in general uh, with life. What is, what's been your proudest moment up until this day? Yeah, I, I think the proudest, I would say, moments in building Whoop are these messages that I receive from Whoop members about how the products change their life. And, you know, that could be that they lost weight for the first time in their life. That could be that they finally figured out how to sleep. That could be they won a NBA championship or a gold medal. Um, and increasingly, it's it's been people reaching out with the subject, whoop, saved my life or you saved my life. And, uh, you know, an incredible story about how understanding things that were off in their data led them to proactively seeing a doctor. And next thing you know, they were having a heart attack or they were in some disease state that they otherwise would never have known about. So, you know, that, that for me, uh, it's just pretty unbelievable. And, um, and so I'm, I'm very grateful to be able to build technology that has that kind of an impact in people's lives. And I, I know that the whole Whoop team is incredibly grateful to get to build technology that has that kind of impact. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and yeah, you should be so super proud. And, and um, you know, just wanted to say a, a big thank you, not only for, for your time today, but also obviously for the, the amount of effort and um, I guess dedication and uh, grit that it would have required to get through those early years of actually getting this up and running and, and Whoop turning into what it is today. Um, so yeah, thank you so much and, and really appreciate your time today. And I, I know the listeners would have really appreciated your time as well. Um, you know, obviously Whoop is something that I talk about a lot on the show and I know there were a lot of people excited to have you on, uh, me included. So thanks so much, Will. I really appreciate it, man. And for everyone who has tuned into this episode, we would absolutely love for you to share this episode with your friends, take a screenshot, share it on your social media. We'd love to hear your feedback um tag whoop tag will um and yeah thank you so much for coming on will danny thank you for having me pleasure